Good day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. And how about yourself? I'm going well. I'm, I'm going well for our, our last podcast for a little while. Dad, I'm, I'm taking off on us for a little while. So I'm very much looking forward to today's podcast, but I must admit looking forward to a break of a couple of weeks before we come back for episode 100 as well. Yes, you're leaving us almost stranded on 99, aren't you? But I think that means that we can be pretty confident of reaching our century pretty soon. Well, certainly, and yeah, I know, I, I must admit, I didn't realise when I booked a couple of weeks away that this would be the timing for episode number 100, but we thought, look, we, we do want to do something a little bit bigger and maybe a little bit juicier for episode 100, and so we didn't want to rush it before I do head away shortly, so we thought we'd get this one over and done with, which relates a little bit to the last podcast that we did as well, and then we'll have a couple of weeks off, I'll go and get, you know, refreshed and uh, go catch a bit of sport, Dad, and... Then we'll come back and get stuck into episode 100. I'll look forward to that. Well, before we do get there, we've called today's episode Belief in Ghosts, Is It Irrational? So, Dad, look, I must admit up until probably pretty recently, it's a question that in some ways I probably would have just answered yes to. So what are we going to be talking about today? Yes, and the idea of a ghost sounds a bit childlike, doesn't it? A bit comical, the idea almost. But often people think of the term ghost in relation to an experience of connection with the deceased and what we're going to talk about today is how many people have beneficial experiences positive experiences that they identify as being a connection with someone close to them who's died and we're going to use some examples today and well it could be someone that a person has actually had a real life connection with like a relative but there are other ways that people can perceive another character like a ghost that can give them some kind of information or guidance in a certain way we'll talk about that as well but it's to do with a spiritual connection with the deceased that we'll mainly be talking about it but also some other ways that people might describe an encounter with what they describe as ghosts and it is one of those things like, you know, Dad, oh, I grew up in the 90s and we had that cartoon Scooby-Doo back in the day. And so like, I must admit when I hear the term ghosts, you know, it's probably that almost caricature, that Hollywood version of a ghost in terms of, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost. There's you know, ghost stories and movies that aren't necessarily, as you say, what we're talking about today. And it's an interesting one. Like I think if you were to just ask and answer that question, you know, on surface value, as I said like a month ago, like do you believe in ghosts? Like well, for me, like it just... No, like I certainly wouldn't have. But I think if you almost say change the question a little bit and say if it's not so much do you believe in ghosts, but if the question was instead something like do people have experiences with the deceased that seems to transcend rational logic? Well, that's something that I, I think is a little bit more of an open question as someone who's maybe a little bit sceptical about the whole idea of ghost dad. And, and I suppose when you really look into it and almost say accept that Second question is a premise in terms of, you know, yes, people have some maybe encounters with a spirit of a deceased person. Well, that opens up things a little bit more to, I suppose, look at things in a way where you kind of go, hold on, well, yeah, actually, I suppose that, you know, does resonate with me in a way or yeah I can see how that I suppose fits my current worldview in a way so it is something that I suppose since looking into this I maybe have become a little bit more open to the idea that maybe there's something a little more going on there than maybe what I realised dad. Yes so some general background as well in terms of whether it's irrational straight off belief in ghosts one thing that's striking is how many people have an experience that they would relate to as some kind of connection with ghosts. And so 
in 2012, it was one of the first times I heard of a poll that was asking people about their belief in ghosts. About 45% of people in this Western population said that they believed in ghosts. Now, a few years ago, I think it was, in The Economist magazine, it was certainly a mainstream magazine, where they reported on an American population where 50% of the US women who were surveyed said that they believed in ghosts and around about 40% in men. So that, in the first instance, might seem surprising, but it can maybe encourage us to be at least a little bit open. I think as a psychologist, it's worth being open to considering experiences that many people have that they find meaningful in whatever way. And that's why I think this is interesting. I think it's even more interesting because there's controversy around it or so much scepticism despite so many people believing in some experience like that. And so we'll give examples later on where it might have been hearing the voice of a deceased relative that had a profound impact on a person. Sometimes it can be actually having an image of a person like in a three-dimensional form. It might be an image of a person that someone has not encountered before but conveys some kind of message to them in a way that they feel represents a kind of real message rather than just their imagination or projected fantasies. Like I've known of people, for example, who've seen a ghost when in the company of a couple of other people. They've said afterwards, we'll promise each other we will never tell anyone about this because no one will believe us. And one of the reasons we're raising this topic is because a number of people can fear that they're losing their minds or they can fear that they'll be believed to be psychotic if they acknowledge something like this experience, which, in my understanding, the vast majority of cases that people report this kind of experience, it's not overlapping with other signs of mental illness, it's not an indication that a person's losing their mind, so we might as well acknowledge this kind of experience, especially if at times it can be helpful, as we describe later on. Well, I think it's such an interesting thing in terms of, like, uh, maybe say this interplay with rationality in a way, because it is something that, you know, as I said, like, I probably would have identified myself as someone who was a little bit more sceptical about this sort of thing, say, a, a month or two ago. And so I think if, for example, I was to have an experience like the ones that we'll go through a little bit later on, because I think it is good to get into some of the stories too, because it helps demystify these things a little bit more than, say, just talking about it. But, like, if I was to go through one of these experiences, it had completely knocked my socks off to the point where gosh, you know, I don't know how I'd cope with a situation like that. It would just be so sort of profound and almost worldview shattering that it would be so hard to deal with something like that in terms of how do you, how do you come to terms with integrating an experience like that into, say, like a rational worldview. But I suppose, like, one thing that I've found fascinating recently when looking into certainly some of this sort of stuff, but also stuff like, say, religion and, and things like this, and... I suppose if you look at, say, the history of humanity, like we're taking a, a pretty broad view here, but I suppose to contextualise things, this is how I find it so interesting. Say, for example, it was about 130,000 years ago that we have the first evidence that people started burying the dead. And like on one level you wonder, like, why on earth was that? Like 130,000 years ago, it was the Pleistocene age. You know, this was basically about 90,000 years before Neanderthals went extinct. This is about 120,000 years before saber-toothed cats went extinct, 120,000 years before agriculture. Like, it was such a different world back then. Humans were hunter-gatherers to the point where we wouldn't have even had a lot of energy, for example. And 
For example, something like you'd think going out into an open field and digging a grave for someone and putting yourself in danger. Like These are such counterintuitive ideas for, I imagine, what the world would have been like at that time. And so what I wonder about that is like what compelled those people 130,000 years ago, like our ancestors, to bury their dead in a way like what was it that they picked up on whether it was some sort of tangible or intangible sense that when this person's you know soul or spirit or whatever way they had of describing it left their body there was some need to respect that you know vessel which carried you know their soul or this sort of stuff like these are such profound ideas for what seem like say such primitive humans in terms of looking at the history of things like written language was only what 5,500 years old and we're talking about something 130,000 years ago so in some ways an experience with say like like the dead or, or some connection with the deceased is such a fundamental part of the human experience you know you could argue that you know in some ways it's well, more than 10 times more fundamental than agriculture to the human experience because of its age. Yes, it certainly implies this very lengthy belief in human history about an afterlife and a belief, if you like, in a soul dimension in life. And many cultures have images that emphasise the number three, like the three sides of a pyramid, for example, the Holy Trinity. These things tend to imply that for human beings there are three core dimensions in life, body, mind and soul. And I think that often psychology and psychiatry have lost a bit of recognition of the soul dimension in life, despite psychology technically means study of the soul. Psychiatry technically means soul doctoring. And I don't think that there is so much recognition of soul in psychology and psychiatry, despite these being such fundamental human beliefs going right back. And just as an aside, looking at say, modern ideas and scepticism compared to this lengthy history of belief in, in a soul or afterlife. I'm reminded of a podcast recently of Nick Cave being interviewed on the ABC Conversations podcast by Richard Feidler. And Nick Cave was talking about the loss of his 15-year-old son. He died when he fell off a cliff. And Nick Cave clearly had some kind of sense of interest or connection with the spirit of his son. It was actually a theme of his album called Ghost Teen. But in being interviewed, it was interesting that Nick Cave described how he's got this website called The Red Hand Files and people writing their stories that partly relate to grief and loss. And Nick Cave says the most common theme of people writing their stories is this feeling of the presence of a deceased person all around. The presence of a deceased loved one all around. Now, this is interesting. It's such a common kind of experience. Is it that all these people are just fanciful or whatever or are they having some kind of real world experience that's hard for us to make sense of in rational ways well just because it's hard to make sense of rationally doesn't mean that we should dismiss it especially if it's very meaningful for people so the way that Nick Cave put it is he said it's a real pity that from say the second half of last century that people see that kind of belief connection with a deceased person as being intellectual weakness or like magical thinking he said i think that's a pity that people see it that way and i agree with that because i've seen many healthy people who have beliefs of that type and i've also seen a number of clients whose well-being has improved greatly 
after they felt they did have some kind of spiritual encounter or some kind of reconnection with someone who died. Well, I think that's such a good point. And like, it is one that, look, I must admit, when we first spoke about doing this topic, my first thought is I have heard, say, stories over time where I thought, look, to be just completely frank about it, I think people have read maybe a little bit too much into things. Like, I must admit, like, I have heard stories over time where, for example, you hear someone say, you know, describe just something a little bit vague and, and someone else might know, for example, a story in the area and so they can, say, read something into it and it is something that looks maybe a little bit like, say, confirmation bias but, but I think there are certain stories that you hear where it's just got so many, for example, like variables that line up in a way that is so specific that like, it, it simply can't be explained away by confirmation bias because like confirmation bias suggests that it happens so many times where it doesn't work out just that way. It's almost like we just ignore it and we only latch on to the ones where our preconceived notion is confirmed in a way. But you just you never hear stories or you never come across situations where people bring up stuff like, oh, you know, I heard this sound or, or I had this kind of seemingly irrational experience. Like, you just don't hear stories like that anywhere near frequently enough for it to be what would be confirmation bias. Yes, and there's certainly situations where an apparition or a figure seeming like in three-dimensional life is witnessed by several people at once, all describing the person in the same way. So there are some situations where you can't just dismiss what the person has perceived as a ghost as being a projection of their own imagination. However we explain it, there's something of a mystery, but it can't just be dismissed as an individual projection. Well, let's get into some of these stories where this does come up then because I think if we do go through some of the stories, that point will maybe become a little bit more illustrated because you do just hear somewhere, it is just bizarre, the maybe uncanny nature of the way that they occur. So how do some of these experiences with the deceased come up? Look, actually, I might mention an example of when I met a psychologist who I thought was quite sceptical about all of this and then she offered me a very meaningful story but I was at a workshop and I met a psychologist that many years ago I had supervised and we caught up with what we'd been doing in the years in between and I said that I'd been writing a book on synchronicity and she said oh look do you actually believe in that sounding quite skeptical and saying look don't you think most of those experiences of coincidences can just be explained by chance sheer coincidence rather than being beyond chance and I said well look No, actually, I think some experiences, they do go beyond chance, even though they seem irrational, synchronicity being an example, meaningful coincidence. Now, she started to say something about her mother when her mother died. And we didn't have enough time to talk about the story then, but I felt that there was something else she was going to say. So I called her later and I said to her, when I phoned her, look, I thought you were maybe going to tell me a certain kind of story about your mother. She said, ah... Yes, I did think of something when we were talking. She said, many years ago, my mother died and I became very depressed. I was racked with grief. And there are some strange things that happened before then. Before my mother died, we went on a trip to visit a number of relatives. And my mother took me along and I realised after a while, this seemed like my mother's way of saying goodbye to them. Even though there was no indication that her mother was just about to die, but she did die a relatively short time after that. And it was quite remarkable because when 
the psychologist, we'll call her Mary, when she saw the photos that were processed of the visits with her mother and the, the old-fashioned camera, the film, her mother's appearance in these group photos was as a photographic negative when other people appeared their normal way in a photograph. In other words, her mother's image on the photograph was a somewhat ghostly kind of image. Now, that seemed very strange. It was hard to explain in any particular way. Well, anyway, she was quite depressed with grief for well over a year to the point where her family members were wondering if she'd get back to normal. She had an infant daughter at the time that she'd sometimes take to the park. And when she went with her daughter to the park one day, she thought she heard this voice calling out a name. And then she didn't think so much of that. And then unmistakably again, she heard a voice calling out her name. And she recognised this definitely as like her mother's voice. Now, from a point of grief and depression, she described that this had actually turned out to be a turning point in her life because she said that rather than losing her mother forever that she'd felt close to, hearing her mother's voice calling her name when she'd felt troubled and dealing with a challenging situation, including with her infant daughter, this feeling of support from her mother calling her voice, she said this helped her realise that her deeply felt connection with her mother was not gone. The way she described it is that her mother was still there for her despite being in a different form. So she said after that, she felt so much stronger. She felt the support of her mother still with her, the connection still there. She went back to teaching. She undertook further tertiary studies. She then became a psychologist and went on from strength to strength as a psychologist at that time. But the turning point was hearing her mother's voice, which I'll mention is an example of what Ken Pargament, a psychologist who studies spiritual kind of experiences, sacred experiences. We probably mentioned him in the most recent podcast. He calls it hierophany. Hierophany is a term which is like a real-life connection with the deceased, in this case hearing a voice. Turned her life around, resolved her grief, resolved her depression, and then afterwards she was actually watching on TV some documentary that her husband was looking at as well and it turned out to be from Oxford University and they were talking about a similar kind of experience of people having a connection with the deceased and she thought, wait a minute, this is Oxford Uni, this is a real thing. I think it was only after that that she confided to her husband about her experience with the mother's voice because she thought then he might believe her because they're seeing this academic kind of documentary. So it just shows, in that case, the profound benefit of the experience. But again, with seeing this documentary on TV that was maybe synchronistic, her husband happened to be looking at it at the same time and pointing it out to her, that actually helped her confide this very meaningful experience with her husband. And I suppose that's where, like, with confirmation bias, like to take it back there in terms of with confirmation bias, that it almost suggests that for that to be confirmation bias, that person would basically have to hear voices, you know, basically semi-regularly that they just, you know, it wouldn't be regular enough for them to pick up on. But it was only after the death of their mother that it put a certain, say, frame of mind in their head that they then picked up on it and remembered it. It's like... Like, no, it's just, it's something that only happened after the experience with losing her mother. So like, it just seems to suggest that there is maybe a little bit more going on than simple 
chance and confirmation bias. Yeah, so we're asking, is this kind of experience rational or irrational? Now, when something's irrational, then there's generally evidence that it's not true and it's typically disruptive. Well, rather than being disruptive, this was helpful. And in terms of the evidence, well, again, this Oxford documentary saying how often people had that experience and how beneficial it could be seemed to add evidence for her point of view. So again, as Ken Parkament described, approximately one-third of people have some kind of experience that's like a real-world connection with the deceased. So we shouldn't dismiss it, and it's not just some flaky kind of idea representing that people are losing their mind. Often it's healthy people who have such experiences, or in this case, an example of a circumstance that helps someone regain her health in a profound way. Well, this is something we might chat about a little bit more shortly after we talk about a few more stories of how this shows up. But like, I always find it so interesting in sport how this comes up, for example, because you know when a loved one of a, a player or a coach or you know a participant of a sport passes away, there's always this sense that you know if the player plays the next game, like they're, they're always with them. You know, their their loved one who's who's passed on is with them in some way. There's still some connection. Like it was interesting during the last World Cup. Like I think. Lionel Messi, who obviously captained Argentina to the World Cup, he said about Maradona, Diego Maradona, who Argentinian legend, who obviously passed away in the previous four years. And he said, he is watching us from heaven. He is pushing us. And I really hope this stays the same until the end. Like, obviously, he was gaining some sense of benefit from it. But it's so interesting that, you know, this, you know, I hope it stays with us until the end. Like for Messi, it seems that there was this real tangible element to which Maradona was connected to the team and was with the team and it's almost like in that context we kind of accept it and we go yeah of course you know that's that's exactly how it is and they're you know playing on behalf or you know with the love and with the connection of of their deceased loved one but we go to all these other contexts outside of life and it's almost like oh yeah yeah sure you know oh you must be doing it so tough at the moment as if you know it's a symptom of grief and nothing else. Yes, and that's where I find it interesting. If you go to a funeral or talk to someone a day or two after a funeral, it's so common that people mention this feeling of the presence of the person who's died all around or in some way some connection. It's just like a part of normal conversation. And then maybe two or three days after a funeral, you don't hear of it again. It just drops away. But like you mentioned with that example of Lionel Messi talking about Maradona, yes, I saw that written about in the newspaper and when you're attuned to that a bit, it stands out all the more and I wonder if people listening to this podcast notice some of this language coming up in our culture, in our descriptions of situations a little bit more because when you're attuned to it, you notice it a bit more. Normally we tend to screen it out because it sounds irrational. And I think there's almost this sense of, you know, like in our culture, we don't have a lot to do with death and we, we don't talk about death a lot, say, compared to people in Mexico, where I, I believe death is a, a maybe much closer to the surface part of, of life in some ways than in the West. But I think there is almost this sense that, you know, on some level, everyone accepts that, basically, you know, there is just something going on that we haven't quite been able to explain in kind of rational propositions yet and like I think for example when someone does die like that is a a time when it does show up in terms of we all give people the respect of going 
hold on, you know, I, I'm actually not confident enough about my scepticism here to when someone's, you know, mourning in a stage of grief to go, you know, actually, I, I think your worldview is slightly off in this way. Like, there's an element of respect that comes into it. But, you know, I think people are, you know, disrespectful enough out there that someone somewhere would, you know, I suppose question someone's beliefs if they were really confident on their own in that situation. But it's almost like people get a free pass because to rationally explain, you know, evidence for the contrary, like, you know, in in some ways there's a, a lack of scientific evidence for some stories, but there's a lack of scientific evidence for them not occurring as well too. And so I think there is this slight element like, you know, so many of these experiences, and, and we'll go through some more in just a moment, but I think they can happen to you and they're almost so profound that either you can choose to gain benefit from them in terms of, you know, go with them and ask, well, what can it give me? What can I get out of it? Or it can just, you know, melt your mind a little bit and it can scramble your brain to the point where you go, hold on, oh, I know nothing about nothing anymore and, you know, what is real and true and, you know, I've got I've got this wrong, so what else have I got wrong? Like... You know, I could see how, I suppose, our worldview would go in that direction if we had an experience that was so profound and we didn't, you know, at least look into the possibility that there was some meaning in it for us or it had something else to offer beyond just scaring our socks off. Yes, and part of what you're talking about there is having respect for people's feeling of connection with the deceased rather than in a sceptical way to look to dismiss that. And I think that's a a risk in psychiatry and psychology that if people do feel a connection with someone who's died and if it can't well be explained rationally, then that might be a little bit undermining to be sceptical about that or not to acknowledge it. And so I have another story about the restorative benefit, how someone gained so much from feeling a reconnection with someone who had died. In this case, it was a client who I was seeing with depression who had lost his infant daughter about 20 years earlier. Say we'll call this fellow Gary and we'll have a brief video about this in the links because it tells a bit of Gary's story and how he benefited. But anyway, I saw Gary initially for depression and it was clear that he was still experiencing post-traumatic stress in relation to the loss of his infant daughter. She died shortly after childbirth about 20 years earlier. And Gary had been seeing a psychiatrist and psychologist over about eight years prior to us having contact, but there wasn't a diagnosis of PTSD for having lost his infant daughter with this terrible medical condition that she had. And Gary was feeling enormously guilty around his daughter's death and funeral arrangements because his wife was in hospital very sick when his daughter died and he had to take over the funeral arrangements himself and he felt that they weren't honouring his daughter enough. Like he felt this little tiny coffin, they didn't have this proper service, the coffin was just thrown on the back seat of a normal car rather than a hearse. He felt a lot of things had happened in a disrespectful way and he felt blameworthy for that as though it might negatively affect the spirit of his deceased daughter. So he harboured such distress about this that he didn't visit his daughter's gravesite because if he did, he thought he would have a compelling urge to take his life if he visited his daughter's gravesite, just didn't visit. Well, anyway, we used EMDR, so eye movement, desensitisation, reprocessing of reliving past trauma and we relived some of the trauma or helped Gary relives some of his 
memories, images and trauma around the time of the loss of his daughter. Well, anyway, after a couple of weeks, he described to me what had happened in a couple of the EMDR sessions or at the end of that, that evening when he'd gone to bed. He said, look, after that first EMDR session, I went to bed that night worrying about my daughter's spirit, if you like, worrying if she was okay in the afterlife, so to speak. He said, anyway, I woke up during the night feeling this pat on the top of my head. Didn't know what it was. My wife was lying in bed beside me asleep. It clearly wasn't her. No one else was around. Felt this pat on my head. He said the next time after our second EMDR session, again, he goes to bed that night, he's falling asleep, wondering if his daughter's okay, the spirit of his daughter. About three o'clock in the morning, there's this flashing light just at three o'clock, a time when he might commonly wake up during the night, suggesting that the power's gone off, so he's going to get up and have a look around, gets up and looks around, comes back to bed, and as he comes back to bed, the power's back on. He says, wait a minute, put two and two together. This is his infant daughter's spirit trying to get a message to him. Previously, the pat on the head the week before, this time the flashing clock just around a time when he might wake up. He said, look, put the two two together. This is my daughter saying that she's all right. She knows I care about her and she knows I know she's okay. There's been these two messages on the nights of the EMDR sessions. I'm going to bed wondering if she's okay. These anomalous, these unusual experiences happening then, but especially the pat on the head, that's my daughter trying to get a message to me. She's okay. Now, after the next EMDR session, he mentions to me following that, he's woken up at night and actually seen an image of his infant daughter's face. Looking toward him, again, he thought it was his wife's face at first, but he realises that she's asleep, she's turned away, so this is his daughter appearing to him in a peaceful kind of positive way. This feeling of reconnection with his daughter, his PTSD completely resolved. His depression massively improved. He says he feels he had more energy, he was more motivated at work, he's more efficient at work, his family relationships had improved. We were measuring his trauma reactions and depression, they dropped down to like just normal levels. And I might even add, even though he saw me a few times in the years following when other situations had led him to feel quite stressed and at times depressed, he had no further recurrence of the PTSD symptoms. He said, no, in relation to his daughter, that was sorted. He still felt that connection with her. Now, that's hierophany on a grand scale in terms of its impact. This feeling of a real-world connection with someone close to him he'd lost, powerful impact. Now, who can say that that's delusional on his part. Who can say that there's no truth of any connection for him with the spirit? We know it was beneficial. But if many other people report similar kind of experiences like that Oxford documentary that the other psychologists had, had watched, and many people have different kind of stories around this, when you're open to hearing them, you hear more of them, I think we should acknowledge such experiences as very meaningful to the person and not dismissing them as not being real. Because who's to say exactly what's real or not in this situation? We know about its real impact. We know it was based on some kind of unusual, actual sensory experience. 
that they've interpreted in that way, that people might also refer to that as a ghost, but more profoundly in this case, the spirit of someone who had died, who was close to him. Well, it's such a, a fascinating story, that one. And there's a couple of things that come to mind there. And I suppose the first one is that, you know, as someone who potentially hadn't visited his daughter's grave for that long, like it doesn't necessarily suggest that he was someone who was, you know, really you know, looking subconsciously, if that makes sense, for a sign that his daughter was ready to let go and all that sort of thing. Like it suggests that there was some obstacle that he'd gone through over the length of that time and it was something about that experience which gave him a sense of insight about his daughter. Like, you know, you could go through that experience and he could have gone, oh, you know, that means that, you know, it's it, my tax is coming soon. And, you know, he'd be like, oh, no, that's not it. It's like, what was it about his daughter that resonated with that experience, if that makes sense? And, like, as you say, like, the outcome of it is is very real in terms of, you know, what we deal with. And, like, I think if we sort of put it through this kind of, you know, rationality meat grinder in a way and almost, for example, examine it in a, say, like, rational context and like i think it's interesting when you when you do because like there are elements of that story that are you know on a level irrational in terms of you know i for example can interact with the spirit of my daughter like that is something that people go okay all right now do it now you know summon that ability if you have that ability do it right now and it's like oh well i I can't do that so people go oh well it's not real it's not true but at the same time it's like you know that my one of my I've brought it up on this podcast plenty of times. One of my favorite things to do is to play golf, and I think about golf a lot. And you know, maybe a little bit more than I probably should. And if someone said to me, "Summon the ability to have your best round of golf right now," oh, I'd, I'd, I'd do my very best, and you know, I might be able to do it. But there is this intangible aspect to golf and golfing performance. It's not you know black and white. That, for example, I have the ability to perform at this level, so I could just summon it whenever I want like that's just not the way that we experience the world like the world's a bit more fluid than that you know like some days you know I'm at my best some days I'm not at my best and so when it comes to other abilities I think there is this sense of you know sometimes it's there sometimes it's not there and so I think there is this aspect of experiences like that that well we shouldn't necessarily just dismiss it because people can't summon it on command people can't just do it on command it's like well there's other elements of, you know, being human that is a little bit more transient in terms of what we can do. You know, we can do some things at some times and other things at other times. Yes, and so one of the things that interests me about, again, something seeming irrational is why did Gary tell me that story? Because I reckon that most people who have those experiences aren't going to tell their psychologist or mental health professional because they think they'll seem too wacky. Now, here's part of the spookiness of this whole story. I reckon the reason why Gary told me that story about this connection with his infant daughter is he believed I'd be open to it. Why would he believe that? It was one of our first interactions that happened before we were doing the EMDR sessions. Gary came in one session and he asked me, I've never been asked this by a client before, do you believe in synchronicity? I said, look, funnily enough, I'm actually writing a book on it at the moment. So we both laughed about this. Now, the reason he brought that up is because there was this funny coincidence about an appointment scheduling. 
And I believe that you were the person who Gary approached about an appointment saying, hey, my next appointment is so-and-so. Can I change that, say, from a Tuesday to a Wednesday to a different day? And then I believe that you said, oh, look, actually, no, um, Chris doesn't see people on that day. You're wanting to change it too. And so he says, oh, okay, leaves the appointment when it was. He comes in and sees me and I ask him straight off, oh, for our next appointment, can we change it? from this day to this day, and I offered him the exact day and time that he was going to ask you for when you were taking that appointment this time years ago. And anyway, he was blown away by that because I explained I don't normally do that, but there was this really unusual situation that had come up. I clearly hadn't communicated to anyone else about I was going to make this change. Anyway, he asked me, do you believe in synchronicity? I said, yes, I'm writing a book on it. We both laugh. So we both believe in things that can't easily be rationally explained. We both think some things are beyond coincidence, more than just coincidence kind of thing. I think that preamble that we had, that interaction we had, and the laugh we had about it was like a communication. He knew I would be open to it. And it reminds me, a number of clients didn't tell me some of their spooky stories until they knew I was writing about synchronicity. They usually keep it to themselves because they fear that they will seem crazy, even to a mental health professional. And in terms of the blocks or barriers to people like improving in their well-being, I think it's an advantage if one of those blocks is not the undue scepticism or dismissing something that seems irrational just because you can't explain it by mental health professionals. We ought to be encouraging people to tell us about the meaningful experiences that help them, even if it seems spooky, wacky, or we can't explain in another way. And I've found that many of my clients have benefited from being more open to these kind of experiences. Well, I think it is something that as a psychologist, like you'd, you'd hear so many fascinating stories and, and I'm sure there'd be plenty of people who you probably saw in, in session, you, and, you know, <laughs> it's not on you, Dad, but you probably didn't, you know, get them to open up in terms of just there's the nature of these experiences that is so kind of out there and profound that I think even if you did trust someone, it would be hard at times to open up and, and admit that something like that had happened and I suppose like that as you say like that's part of what we want to you know do with this episode and the last episode I don't know the coincidence project that, that you're a part of as well like part of that is to I suppose make it easier for people to realize that you know these experiences doesn't you know mean that you're crazy or you're deficient in any way or you know that as you say like well I'd agree with Nick Cave that it's not employing magical thinking or it's you know it's not even irrational and like I find it so interesting that you know in sport there's this element of you know when someone has experienced a death close to them like we do accept that they're going to have a connection with that person that you know lasts that game and provides intangible results at times and like there's so many countless examples. Like there's a few that come to mind. For example, I think it was the 2002 Melbourne Cup where Damien Oliver, his brother, had died that week in a, a tragic accident on a horse in Perth, I believe it was. And anyway, that week Damien Oliver comes out and wins the Melbourne Cup on Media Puzzle. You know, wearing his brother's jodhpurs, and it was just this incredible story. They made a movie out of it, and you know. Damien Oliver references afterwards, you know, my brother Jason was with me for that ride and I think it was the 2006 British Open off the top of my head where Tiger Woods had just experienced the death of his father, you know, his coach, his mentor, his idol and again, like he spoke about this real sense that out on the golf course, you know, his dad was with him and, you know, 
we just accept that. Like, we just think in sport, like, there is this connection. Of course, you know, they're with them. Like, absolutely, they're looking over them and helping them, supporting them through this game. And, like, I think my, oh, just about my favourite bit of, of commentary all time, sporting commentary, was a horse race dad, believe it or not. And it was a guy, Matt Hill, Australian race caller. And it was a couple of days after Michael Gadinsky had died, the legendary music producer. And he had a horse called Homesman. It was a 20 to 1 horse in an Australia Cup, so a big race. And basically this horse was really not, not favoured to win at all. And anyway, it's coming down to the end of it. And it's Basically, it's there, this horse. It looks like it's going to win. It was there with another horse called Best of Days. And uh, So anyway, Matt Hill sees these two horses coming to the line. You know, Best of Days and Homesman. Best of Days and Homesman. And he sees Homesman's going to get in front. And he goes, Homesman, with the music man cheering above. And then, you know, the horse hits the line and it was just this perfect moment where it perfectly encapsulated the emotion and the intimacy and the energy of the moment. And it was just this almost kind of intangible overwhelm of of emotion. It was just the way that things all came together in a way that was just so uncanny and it was connected to someone who had, you know, recently passed away. But it's not as if anyone sort of said, oh, you know, that was a bit, oh, it was a bit out there of Matt Hill to reference the fact that, you know, someone had passed away during the horse race. Like, no one saw it as inappropriate. And it's almost like, you know, no one ever finishes a game after their loved one's passed away and says something in an interview, something like, oh, you know, like, I'm, I'm proud of myself because I've just been so sad this week because I'll never get to speak to my loved one again. And, and that's so hard to deal with. And even in amongst all that negative emotion, I was able to play well today. Like, the context is always... They were with me and, you know, I did it for them and, you know, basically, you know, their love got me through is sort of the notion of it, like this strong connection that we had basically was there with me in a tangible sense on the court and it's almost like we we accept that and we kind of go, yeah, like absolutely in that situation that would be the case and then, you know, three or four weeks later we kind of forget about it and, you know, we all move on and sort of sweep it under the carpet again. But when it is front and centre because there is a a current experience or we're really connected with the emotion of what it's like to go through something like that. And it's almost like not just the emotion, it's it's the circumstances around that. It's the it's the spooky things that can happen when you go through the loss of, of a loved one. And so in sport, oh, I think we have a way of celebrating that in a way and we have a way of acknowledging it. But that hasn't quite made its way to broader society just yet. Yes, and their broad cultural traditions like All Saints Day and Halloween and different kinds of cultures have ways of acknowledging some kind of connection with spirits, if you like. And another theme that you mentioned there, say, the connection that sports people acknowledge with, say, lost loved ones, it's just helpful to acknowledge that. Any way we maintain a connection, whether it seems rational or otherwise, can be helpful. A common way is sports people wearing a black armband, for example, soon after someone important to them has died. So there are ways that maintaining a connection in whatever way could be helpful. But I should acknowledge as well, not all connections with what feels like a spirit or a ghost are necessarily positive or helpful. I know of a number of situations where people, for example, has felt that there's been a spirit in a house which is maybe troublesome, that might even come across in the notion of a house being haunted, 
and I know that a number of people who believe in a transpersonal spiritual dimension in life will sometimes think that maybe somebody wasn't ready to die. I know that many, for example, nurses in nursing homes on night shift feel at times there's a presence of someone who has died recently, but it's almost like their spirit wasn't ready to leave. I remember one night shift nurse telling me one time she was at a filing cabinet and felt a big push in her back. She's pushed forward against the filing cabinet. She looked around, there's no one there. She said to another nurse on night shift, I felt this big thump in my back, pushed me forward at the filing cabinet. And the nurse said, oh, that'll be so-and-so. This fellow who died maybe a couple of weeks earlier. Apparently this is a common belief amongst many nursing home night shift workers that they do have encounters like this. And look, I even remember a situation where a friend who I didn't know had this transpersonal interest. Part of her role in America is people come and see her, they trust her, she's a very capable and resourceful consultant in different areas, but what she also does sometimes is if people feel there's some kind of spirit left over in their house that in a sense, is unwanted. She goes and she speaks in tongues and she does some kind of ritual and she feels that cleanses the particular area. And I've heard of many anecdotes like that. And I've also heard when people feel that there's a spirit that hasn't accepted moving on, sometimes if the person unmistakably says, look, there's no need to be around here now. It's time to move on or some other kind of ritual or something gets across that message. Maybe a spiritual medium might go and mediate on the behalf of the person saying, look, now it's time for you to let go and move on. They might, I don't know, have some other ritual that goes with that. And then afterwards the person feels that, if you like, their space is cleared a bit further. Now, I'm open to that. I don't understand that particularly, but I do believe, body, mind and soul, that there's a transpersonal dimension that goes beyond what we commonly think of in psychology as body and mind being everything. And these stories we've described today, and there'll be some others that we put in links, can maybe add to those themes. Well, I think what you mentioned there, in terms of it being helpful to acknowledge, like in some ways that to me is is some of the crux of this sort of stuff in terms of like, and I suppose it extends to, you know, beyond say experiences with, with people who are deceased, but anything experiential, like anything that we experience that seems a little bit spooky or crazy, like it seems to me that it's going to be helpful to acknowledge that regardless like in terms of you know if we go through an experience where you know it completely blows our socks off it's so profound and beyond anything that we'd been through before that it really you know scrambles our brain in some ways like either we can just completely ignore that which you know it strikes me as sort of you know being pretty hard to do and, and potentially counterproductive even if it is for example like a, a psychotic hallucination like seems to me that if we're seeing things, you know, in the middle of the street, that's probably not a good thing to ignore anyway, and it's probably worth, you know, chatting to someone about. But it strikes me that any way that we can acknowledge it, like I'm not necessarily saying, you know, go out there and, you know, shout it from the rooftops that you've had this experience and, you know, basically try and speak to as many people about it as possible. But, like, there might be a way of acknowledging it, even, for example, of, say, reading something that you hadn't have read before in terms of maybe, yeah, like some... Say, I know there's some cultures that have got a lot of stuff about, say, spirits and that sort of thing. Like, there might be some learning that you could do in a new area, which makes you think about things in a new way, or 
there might be someone really trusted that you could talk to and just go, oh, you know what, well, like I, I had this experience the other day and like I'm not reading anything into it at this stage, but like I went through it and all this sort of stuff. Like it seems to me that there's degrees to which you can acknowledge it. You don't necessarily have to jump headfirst into it and, you know, for example, yeah, like as I say, sort of tell a lot of people about it. But like it seems to me that, you know, any way that you can kind of lean in to that experience in terms of, yeah, obviously, you know, it can you know, either just completely overwhelm you and, and make you lose confidence in your worldview and all this sort of stuff and maybe lead you to hide, you know, it away is something that you want to ignore or you can go, well, you know, like what can I get out of, you know, something that I've gone through that I have experienced, even if it's just learning a little bit more about the nature of experience and, you know, our... our senses and you know what they can do and other experiences that people have with their senses all this sort of stuff like I think if you lean into these experiences and and look at it in terms of well what can it offer me in terms of meaning or connection well then you're going to be so much better off than if you were to just ignore it or dismiss it or not look into it through fear of thinking that it's just irrational or crazy. Yes, and allowing for out-of-the-ordinary experiences. I'll mention one final story. A client I'd seen whose life had been fairly unstable and checkered before that time. She was clearly bright, only studied till year 10, and in her family had experienced quite a degree of abuse. Well, anyway, she'd also been in an abusive relationship that she was looking to leave, and so there's a lot of, well, I would say chaos in her life. And she explained a remarkable story to me one time that led to a major turnaround in her life. She'd been thinking of connecting up with ancestors. She had this idea of ancestors connecting with them and finding out more of her family tree. And so she'd been studying on the internet for hours, looking for information on her family tree. Couldn't find any information on her family. Anyway... She's about to go to bed, so she's going to the bathroom to clean her teeth and that. And she sees this figure, this three-dimensional figure, a stooped old man in really strange old clothes, like a pinstripe shirt and a waistcoat and hobnail boots and a funny little cap. This person stooped over, looking at her and saying to her directly, like it's an actual real person, looks like a real person in 3D there, saying to her, the information you require, you will have in the morning. Like an unusual way of speaking kind of thing. The information you require, you will have in the morning. So the next morning she decides she won't give up this research in a family tree. She'll look for something. Within half an hour, she found a link that led her on to information about a well-to-do part of her family which had a strong interest in education. She thought, wait a minute... I've actually got these intelligent, capable relatives. Maybe I can go back and study, and that's something I might do. She went back. She took up a course related to the health and welfare field. She achieved so much that by her second year, she was invited to be a tutor for the first-year students. She ended up graduating from that course. She got a promotion within a couple of years. She's working in the health welfare area as an accomplished professional, she probably would not be doing that if she did not encounter this, do we call it an apparition, a ghost, a spirit. She felt it represented 
her ancestors in some way, guiding her in some way. So I wrote about her in my book, The Positive Psychology of Synchronicity, is one of these examples of someone turning things around and promoting their well-being in some way. So that's how this was not a connection with a deceased relative per se, but in this case representing a meaningful connection to her. And I might mention, we talked about this, there's a book called True Ghost Stories of Our Time by Vivian Ray Ellis. And Vivian Ray Ellis describes many, many different examples of where people have encountered some kind of apparition or ghost or spirit like that. Many, many different stories from people of a whole range of walks of life that's hard to dismiss as someone just being flaky or mentally ill or just projecting from their own imagination. Sometimes these encounters connected up with something in objective reality in a way that you couldn't readily dismiss. Well, I think that's certainly true, Dad, in terms of something that you can't readily dismiss. Like, that that seems to, to me, what it all comes down to in some ways. Like, you know, I may have approached this as a sceptic a couple of weeks ago, but I, I never would have thought that I knew everything in this area. And there are certainly things that, you know, seem to be a little bit beyond our, our current ability to explain in rational terms. And, like, I, I guess... One thing, just to, to finish on from my point of view in terms of what we're saying today, it doesn't necessarily mean, to my mind anyway, that you know it's, it's objective evidence of there being, for example, life after death or it's an objective evidence in, in a scientific sense of you know people can interact with you know the deceased whenever they want to sort of thing. But it seems to me that there is truth in people's experience in terms of you know, it might be a seemingly spooky, you know, seemingly irrational experience, but for that person that you just mentioned there, like that led them to something that for them was, you know, very fundamentally true about themselves and how they could get the most out of themselves as a person. And so it strikes me that there's elements of insight that, you know, are seemingly irrational anyway, like insight in itself. It's like, how on earth does that, you know, pop into our head when we're walking down the street? But at the same time, like part of insight is that, you know, it seems to hint at a truth for us and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, rational insight that leads us to, I suppose, recognise those truths. But yeah, I guess it seems that people can go through experiences that almost lead them to an insight which helps them accept a premise which then allows them to go on and, you know, whether it be have a, a more positive experience than they would have or foster a connection with someone who's died like these are positive things and it seems to me that there is an element of, of truth in there in terms of what people experience maybe not in terms of say like the scientifically objectifiable way but uh but at the same time as you say like who are we to dismiss the truth in these experiences when they are providing insight that gives people benefit yes and so this relates to the broad theme that Carl Jung talked about of the collective unconscious, he called it. And just as we might benefit through evolution of physical aspects through genes and genetics that are passed through from one generation to the next, Jung's idea was that there was certain kinds of consciousness or psychic awareness that also could carry on from previous generations and benefit later generations. And many different cultures of the world quite explicitly acknowledge the benefit from ancestors that way. And a final way I'd put it is maybe how Nick Cave described in that podcast interview we mentioned earlier on from the Conversations podcast. 
He described that a feeling of proximity for the dead can be an extremely powerful thing. And he went on to suggest that we can offer a place, we might do well to offer a place for such experience without pathologising it, was the general idea. We don't have to pathologise it. So that includes for mental health professionals and others, if we do have such experiences, it does really help sometimes to tell them to a trusted other, especially if we feel that we can be accepted with that kind of view. And we're encouraging that, just like our previous podcast was encouraging people to tell their sacred stories. This time we've talked about a particular type of sacred story, a kind of spiritual connection with someone who's died. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's oh, It's been good over these last couple of episodes and oh, we do have a, a couple of week break on our hands. I'm very much looking forward to episode 100, which is up next. So oh, you'll have to subscribe and, and stay tuned for episode 100. In the meantime, Rowan, have a great trip. Thanks, Dad.